I don't know how you guys spent all of your time in, uh, in quarantine and lockdown. At first, you know, you have a plan and a routine, and you figure out what you're going to do when you're home. And one of the things we did was we planted a garden in the backyard over there. And um, full disclosure, I've never gardened before in my life. And so every, every day brings new surprises. There are bugs that have to be, you know, killed and weeds that have to be pulled. And uh, I'll never forget the first day I went out there and was looking at the green beans. And the day before, there were just little flowers. And it seemed like the very next day, magically, there was a green bean. And it's just so cool. There's cucumbers appear out of nowhere, and they're like huge. And you're like, that should have, I should have seen that yesterday, but it just, it just was hidden. And so a couple weeks ago, um, I, I, I don't know, harvested? That, that seems a little bit too official for what I do. But I, I, I pulled some of these, they're yellow scallop squashes. And there were a few of them out there, and I cut them up, put them in the skillet, put some butter and oil on them, salt and pepper, and it tasted like dessert. You have no clue, like, how satisfied I felt. My kids are here, back here, they think I'm just such a good farmer, you know? And, and I feel like it, I'll be honest, I feel like a great farmer. But, you know, I've learned something. I pulled this one off this morning, and it's pr- y'all are laughing at me, because you know it's probably a little too small. Maybe I should have let it go a little bit longer, but I needed it for this. So I pulled this guy off this morning, and, and had I left him there, he would have grown. He would have gotten bigger. They get to be like this, you know? And plump and juicy and they're good. But from this point forward, this guy is going to die. Deteriorate slowly, a little bit at a time. I already see he's got kind of like a little scuff. Probably if he just sits out, it's going to get bigger and bigger. Eventually he'd rot. And you know, your life is like that. As long as you stay connected to Jesus, you're like this squash, drawing up life resources to grow and become the person he wants you to be. But you know this from experience, right? The second you're disconnected from him, either because of sin in your life or distraction or whatever, you start to deteriorate. You start to waste away. That's a biblical principle that we're going to see in a minute. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, you're the branches. Anybody who abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You're going to wither up and die. And believe it or not, this principle shows up time and time again in the book of Ephesians. Because Paul wants us to know that we're in Christ, meant to grow up in Christ, meant to reach maturity in Christ. It's all about Him, staying connected to Him and drawing up the life sources from Him. So this morning, as we, as we jump into this book and as we see these first three verses, that's what I want you to know today. That every blessing that God could possibly give you that will last not just for time, but for all eternity is found in Him. And that's what we're going to see here in verses 1 through 3. But before we, before we dive in, I want to tell you a little backstory about Ephesians. Maybe you've read this book and you, and you like it. I like it. Uh, many people say it's Paul's best book, not named Romans. And uh, I think as we go through it this summer, you're going to understand why they feel that way, because it is. It's, it's absolutely majestic. Of course, the city of Ephesus um, no longer exists. Its ruins are there on the Aegean Sea, the far western tip of modern-day Turkey, and you can visit them. It's one of the most visited uh, ancient sites in the, ancient, in, uh, in the Mediterranean world. You can see it there. In Paul's day, it was an amazing city. It was the Roman capital of their province of Asia. Um, 
the ancient uh, historians tell us, it was second in size and importance only to Rome. The big draw for people was the temple to Artemis, which uh, was six stories tall and 150 yards long. Uh, ancient temple built in 500 years or more before Christ. And uh, absolutely amazing. Paul uh, saw it with his own eyes. There was a riot that broke out over it. Um, you can read about that in the book of Acts. But in the middle of this ancient humming city was a church. And not a church building, but a group of people, both Jews and Gentiles, called together in Christ. And they were trying to figure out what it meant to live as one people in a cosmopolitan city being reconfigured and conformed into the image of Jesus. The church there had an inconspicuous start. Uh, you can read about it this week. I've got it there for you in your discipleship guide. Paul stopped off there in the uh, spring of A.D. 54, towards the end of his second missionary journey as he was making his way back to his home church in Syrian Antioch. So he went to the synagogue and preached and then left behind some helpers, Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, later, Apollos shows up and they continue preaching. The next year, Paul shows back up, returns to the synagogue. Eventually, the Jews run him out, and he rents a meeting hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. And uh, he stays there two years, preaching and teaching, building the church up. Paul has a, an extensive relationship with this church. And Luke summarized Paul's ministry of this, in the city in this way, in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. He said, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And it was to these people that Paul wrote this letter. I mean, it contains a summary of the great redemption that God's provided for his people in Christ. It, it shows us what it means to grow up into maturity into the full measure of the head of the body, which is Jesus. It shows us how we're supposed to conduct ourselves and our families and in this messy thing called a church. And Paul doesn't waste any time here in these first three verses to getting to these deep theological themes. Uh, right away, he wants us to understand that a Christian's identity is in Christ. Identity is kind of one of those buzzwords today, but it's not new. It's been around forever. Our identity as Christians should be found in Christ. I want to prove that to you. So if you got your Bible, we're here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul said, well, let me, uh, that's not a good intro, as you'll see. This is what God's Word says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a, a, a pretty standard greeting. You can read the rest of Paul's letters and they pretty much all follow this same pattern where he identifies his intended readers. But when, you, when we write letters, I write letters from time to time, and I, and I say, dear so-and-so. Or if, I, if I'm not you know, familiar with the person, I'll be real formal and say, to whom it may concern, or dear sir, or dear madam. But Paul says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And that, that Paul could call these people who might have lived a couple thousand years apart from us and in a place a long way away. But let's be honest, they're just like us. Broken people with broken families, struggling to make ends meet. And he calls them saints. Uh, the, real, the Greek word is holy ones. He calls these people holy. I mean, we, we usually reserve this word for people whose lives are totally conspicuously different than ours. 
people that when we look at them and when we hear the things they say, it's just obvious that they're closer to God than we are. They're saints. When they pray, God answers. When they read the Bible, they're raised up into the heavens and they get some revelation of who God is. That's who a saint is, right? But Paul addresses the church as saints. And it's obvious they're saints because of the way they live their life. I mean, these people aren't wishy-washy. They're not Christians in name only. These people are faithful in Christ Jesus. Y'all know faithfulness, persistence, consistency, regardless of the circumstances. Whatever came their way, they had the bow of their ship pointed towards their target. Waves could push them, wind could blow them, but they were aimed at living for Jesus. That's all they wanted to do. They're holy. They're saints. They're faithful in Christ Jesus. I mean, it didn't matter if they were raised as a pagan, as many of them were, worshiping at the majestic temple of Artemis. It didn't matter if they were Jews, raised reading the Torah in the synagogue. Their whole identity had been reconfigured and conformed to Christ Jesus. They are the saints in Christ Jesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is who they are, reconfigured to have their identity in Christ. Has your identity been reconfigured around him. And when a person thinks about you, what comes to mind? Your faithfulness to Jesus or, or something else? Now, I believe it probably is your faithfulness to Jesus. You're known far and wide as a Christian. People know you love God. You go to church down there at Central Baptist Church where people live for Jesus. And that's what you, people know you as. That's your reputation. And the good thing about that is since Paul said to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus, I, I like to imagine that we could just insert our own little town's name to the saints who are in Luling, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You see, he didn't put anybody's name in there. He just put the church, the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And because of that, as we read this book, nearly everything we read has direct impact in the lives we're living today. Nothing is superfluous. Everything makes a difference for the way you live. And the first thing is that your identity should be in Christ. Your religious sense reconfigured around Him. But the second thing we need to see this morning, not just that our identity is conformed and reconfigured into Christ, but that God's blessings come to us in Christ. And that's what he gets to here in verse 3 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, if the greeting that we just read in verses 1 and 2 uh, follows Paul's typical pattern, verse 3 sort of deviates from that. Uh, usually, after the greeting, Paul will offer up a prayer of thanksgiving to the church that he's just addressed. He'll say, oh, I thank God every time I remember you, always in every prayer of mine, making thanksgiving for you all, as he says in Philippians. Uh, the Galatians is the only one where he doesn't do that. But what he does here is different, too. Because instead of thanking God for the church, he offers up a prayer of praise. You see that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The NIV translates it, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, and I think that's right. Because this prayer has parallels in the Old Testament. In Psalm 89, Psalm 144, even Moses' father-in-law Jethro prays a prayer like this in Exodus 18. It's got parallels in the New Testament. 
1 Peter chapter 1 starts in almost the exact same way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope. But it all drives out of the first century environment that Paul was in. There's this Jewish prayer called the Barakah, uh, from the Hebrew word for blessing. And, and blessing is the central theme to Paul's prayer. I mean, he, he uses that word three times in verse 3. So let's work our way through those. The first thing he does is he blesses God. Uh, I mean, Paul knew, as we know, that there's nothing that we could really give God that would fill up some kind of deficiency in him. You know, like when we give gifts to somebody, they may say, oh man, that was such a blessing. Thank you for doing that. Which means that there was something in us that their gift, or the words they said, or the thing they did, filled up. We felt encouraged, uplifted. But Paul knew that God didn't need that. He, he wasn't insufficient, not like he's sitting up there in heaven craving our attention because he's insecure. Instead, what Paul does is praise God and draw the Ephesians and, and our attention to all that is praiseworthy in God. And what is praiseworthy in God? Well, Paul says it's the blessing that he's given to us. I mean, biblically speaking, being blessed by God is like, I, I put this in my manuscript, and I don't know if this is true, but it's got to be. Being blessed by God is one of the greatest privileges any human being could ever receive. I mean, to be blessed by God is a big deal. To be blessed by you is one thing. You guys bless me. You bless me by being here. I thought maybe we'd have 20 folks. Lord, there's 5,000 of you. I can't believe it. I'm just kidding. They'll never know, so don't laugh, okay? But, but in all honesty, you bless me. But to be blessed by God is another thing entirely. The first time we see it in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1. Can you believe that? To be blessed by God right there on the first pages. The sixth day of creation. God makes man in his own image and his likeness. And this is what Scripture tells us, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. Later in Genesis, God called a man named Abram out of the ancient city of Ur. And this is what he told Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And that blessing, of course, passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob in a very dramatic scene. Esau, Father, do you not have a blessing also for me? People of Israel took up God's blessing in their own prayers. Psalm 28. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And here's one that maybe we ought to memorize. It's kind of got the same numbers that you can remember. Psalm 29, 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Israel's whole hope was that God would bless them, fill up in them what they lack. Their priests even made it their daily benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then we open up our Bibles to Ephesians 1. And we read Paul say unequivocally, without qualification, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Who's blessed us. Broken people, fallen people. I mean, on one level, of course, we can relate to this. We know, of course, God has blessed us. Y'all are here. 
God's kept you, your health and your sanity the past 12 weeks. You're blessed. You go on Instagram, look at the hashtag, blessed. 124.9 million posts with the hashtag blessed. Y'all know what a hashtag is, right? Hashtag blessed. 125 million. You can scroll through them. See pictures of moms with their kids, beautiful people posing in exotic cars, beautiful destinations, basking in the sun and the health and youth that God's given them. Now, they're blessed. But is that what Paul has in mind? Material blessings, youth, health? No, we come to the next part where he says that God's worthy of praise because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our sure material things, they're good. We thank God, rightfully so. We bless our food when we sit down and pray. We say bless you to a person when they sneeze, right? Those kind of blessings are good. But Jesus says they're prone to moths, to thieves, and the general decay of time. This thing's going to die. It's going to deteriorate over time, just like we all are. So if it's youth, health, wealth that we're banking on, it's going to fail us. But Paul says the blessings God given us are different. Peter says they're imperishable, undefilable, and unfading. They're kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These are heavenly blessings. They're the blessings we read in verses 4 through 14 and that we're going to see in depth next week. Let me just give you a rundown of them. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Paul says that we're blessed because God chose us before the world was created, that we would be holy and part of his family. He says we're blessed because God's accomplished redemption for us through the blood of Jesus and given us the forgiveness of sin. That's a blessing. I got sins that need to be forgiven, and God's done it. He's forgiven me. Man, I am blessed. Paul says that we have the Holy Spirit who has sealed us, who puts God's imprint on us, and says that we belong to him, and nobody can take us from him until we receive the full inheritance that God has given us. All these, these have implications for our lives here. I mean, they're everything. To be forgiven of your sins is the greatest blessing anybody could receive. But it's not a material blessing. It's not materialistic. Instead, it's a heavenly blessing that relates to our relationship with the God who's in heaven. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the key is how you and me, all of us, get to experience those blessings. Not because we've earned them or deserved them. Paul says that God blesses us with these blessings in Christ. I mean, I think sometimes we think that blessing, hashtag blessed, uh, is like good vibes that kind of just ooze out of heaven like sun rays shine over the whole earth. And God just emanates blessing. But what Paul says is that the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ in the heavenly places are concrete realities. They're dispositions of God towards us. They're actions He takes. It's not just good vibes, positive feelings I'm going to put out there for all you human beings. They're concrete. And the phrase, in Christ, is key. And already in these three verses, we've read it. He says to the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says here that God's blessed us in Christ. This prepositional phrase, in Christ, or in its parallels, there's like in Him, in the Beloved, all those, 
36 times Paul uses that prepositional phrase in the book of Ephesians. In Him, in Christ, in the Beloved. Over and over and over and over. There's only six chapters. It's like six times a chapter. If you turn that in in an English paper, your teacher would say, hey, you need to use some adjectives and some synonyms that are different from one another. Okay? But that's what Paul does 36 times because he wants to draw our attention to how essential it is to our relationship with God. The blessings we receive are ours in Christ. And we call this doctrine, it's identified by this phrase, union with Christ or spiritual union with Christ, or mystical union with Christ, that you and Christ are one. That's what Paul wants us to understand. You see, every human being that's ever been born, and that includes all y'all, was born with a sin nature. Right? You are predisposed to do things that are violent against yourself. You're self-destructive. You lie, you cheat, you steal, that has consequences in this life. As we all know, we've all lied and gotten in trouble. But the worst part is that one day we'll stand before the God who created us and give an account for everything we've done and every word we've spoken. On our own, all we can expect is judgment. But what Paul says is that, and he says this in chapter 2, and I'm going to challenge you to memorize this this summer, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. In chapter 2, Paul says that by grace, through faith, God has saved us. He's raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And this is not anything that we've done, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Rather, it's the free gift of God. What happens is you and I are born over here in this state, predisposed towards sinfulness. And by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit works to transform us and put us in Him. So that when we stand before God's throne, we don't have to worry that He's going to see all the brokenness in us. He knows that, and He's dealt with that. We've got the forgiveness of our trespasses, remember. Instead, what He sees is Christ there with us, us clothed in Him, surrounded by Him, perfectly righteous in His sight. And all of this comes by virtue of our union with Him. Let's go a little deeper. Because right now, Jesus is seated in heaven, Experiencing eternal fellowship with God, eternal glory, uh, praise, adoration of all the created beings. And all of that is His by right. He deserves that. Right? He, um, Paul says in Philippians 2 that He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being obedient to God, He offered Himself up on the cross. And because of that, God's given Him the name that's above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Right? He deserves all that praise all that blessing. I don't. When God said of him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, that was accurate. Of course God would feel that way. Jesus is his son. But why then does Jesus teach me to pray, Father in heaven? Why does Paul say that before the world was even created, God had predestined me to be his son? So that when he looks at me, he doesn't say, hey, Brad, buddy, we need to sit down and have a talk. Instead, he welcomes me into his presence. He delights in giving good gifts to me. He's my father, and he's well pleased with me. Not because of anything I've done. If it's on me, all I should expect is judgment. But it's because I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. Because I'm united with him, all the things that are his by right come to me by grace. And I stand before God as his child. And one way to think about this 
preachers call it illustrate. So let me illustrate this for you. Y'all remember the Super Bowl? In January, it feels like a whole different world. But it was just a few months ago. The Kansas City Chiefs took on the San Francisco 49ers. Maybe you remember, the Chiefs won. Uh, they're 24 years old. Can you believe this? I'm older than him now. It's crazy when I watch people on the football field, and I'm, I'm older than them. It's only recently happened. 24 years old. Patrick Mahomes. Phenom. Absolutely amazing. Come from behind, 21.4 victory. Last month, they signed him to a one-year contract extension for $24.8 million, and they think he'll be the first person to get a $40 million a year guaranteed contract at the end of the 2022 season. Crazy but totally deserving. He deserves that. If you saw the game, you knew without Patrick Mahomes, the 49ers would have buried the Chiefs. But here's the deal. Patrick Mahomes was instrumental in their victory. They couldn't have done it without him. But everybody who was on that team, every equipment manager, every athletic trainer, every water boy is a Super Bowl champion. They didn't throw the passes. They weren't out there on the field making the plays with their legs. They're just part of the team. They wear the same jersey. They're part of the same organization. And the same is true for us. Jesus did the work. We just get to reap the benefits by grace through faith in Him. Another way to think about it is what Jesus said in John 15. Talked about it earlier with the, the squash. I'm the vine and you are, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. See, grapes don't magically appear on the lattice. I'm enough of a gardener to know that. To know that squash don't bloom from the grass. There's got to be a squash plant there. The fruit has to be connected to it until it grows, can be harvested. And in the same way, if we aren't in Christ, if we don't abide in Him, that word means to remain, to make our home in Him, to take up residence as if He's our permanent dwelling place. If He doesn't become the all-encompassing reality, our lives reconfigured around Him, our lives will be barren, fruitless, will wither, and will die. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. It says a few verses later, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On our own we're sinful. Our only expectation is sure judgment. But in Christ we are new. We are righteous before God. We are the children with whom God is well pleased. All of God's blessings are ours in Him and in Him alone. And that's why I say that this doctrine of union with Christ, this prepositional phrase, in Him, 
is the essence of our relationship with God. Without it, we've got nothing. Everything we have from God comes to us through Him. What that means is that there is no hope of blessing apart from Him. That all the things that the people post on Instagram are nice diversions, and they'll pass the time. But the lasting blessings are those that God can give. The ones that come as we're connected to Jesus, abiding in Him, allowing His Spirit to bear fruit within us so that we experience things that are totally unworldly. Not from us. Love, joy, peace, patience, the fruits of the Spirit. This is what we need. And so as we close this morning, and as y'all go back to your lives, as we try to put things back together in our homes and in our country, the most important question that anybody could ask is this. Am I in Christ? Am I in Christ? If not, your expectation of blessing is misplaced. But if you are, sit back and watch as God produces fruit in your life. If you think about it and you're, you're pondering, you're like, well, how, okay, Brad, how would I know if I'm in Christ? And you can look in your discipleship guide. There's a passage in 1 John that you can read that tells you exactly how. But I'll give you a, a quick synopsis. What does the whole course of your life look like? What direction are you aimed? Is the bow of your ship pointed towards Jesus or not? That's the question. If it is, and over the long haul, you're seeing yourself producing fruit, you're, you're waking up one morning, and like I was with that green bean, you're like, whoa, I just held my tongue. Where'd that come from? You know, God's working in you. You're in Christ. He's producing the fruit that he promised he would. But if you wake up tomorrow, like, why is life so hard? Why does it seem that I always am butting my head against the wall? Why can I not make any progress? You may need to ask yourself if you're in Him or if you're abiding in Him. And you may know, but just so I can tell you, it's the first time I've gotten to do this in a while, the way a person gets in Christ is simple. Number one, they admit that they're not. That they're just living in themselves, in their sin. And they recognize how wrong-headed that is. That if you just try to operate and live out of your own resources, you'll always get the same results, which is decay, death, destruction. But if you get fed up with that, and you decide you don't want it anymore, you turn your back on it and start running towards Jesus, the Bible calls that repentance. And anybody who confesses their sins experience the faithful forgiveness of God, the cleansing, the production of fruit, and so this morning, if you decide, hey, I don't think I am in Christ, I just encourage you, get down on your knees in your living room or go home this afternoon and talk with somebody you love and tell them that you need to get right with God. Offer up a simple prayer, like the one you might have heard before. Father, you know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself, but I believe that Jesus can save me. And so I'm trusting in Him. I want to be in Him. I want to experience the blessings that you promised to give those who are in Him. And if after searching your heart, you're confident that you are in Christ, this is, I'm confident I'm in Christ, then our task is to join Paul in praise. To make it our daily goal, to start every day blessing the God who's blessed us. Sitting down with our families around the dinner table before we take a bite of our food. Bless the food, but bless God too. 
praise Him for all the good things He's given you. And let that praise overflow into a life of fruitfulness and faithfulness as you grow up in Christ. Will you all pray with me?